this is this is kind of a my uh, once every four years public talk in a kind of public venue. Uh, normally, I teach and talk to students that I visit around the world, and it's usually a kind of in-house production, meaning that uh, they put together a retreat or a teaching space, and I teach there. And it's usually people that are connected to people that already know other people and so on and so on. So I feel that every few years uh, I should get out and just do a public talk, kind of in the grander scheme of the society, to uh, fulfill my duties to present the teaching to those people who might not otherwise connect with. And every once in a while, uh, out of that group of people, uh, somebody gets interested and sticks, so... So it's good for them. But in the uh, in the long term, in the short term of it, the, the, the public face of the teaching that you're going to get from someone like, say, the Dalai Lama um, is, is a general presentation to people who are checking it out. And uh, inevitably, if you want to work more deeply in something, you have to kind of find a, you know, you can go hear Einstein talk on physics, but if you want to learn how to do physics, you better go to school and get a physics teacher and go through the process. So in that sense, uh, um, the, the grand teachers like the Dalai Lama are there to spread the seed of uh, what he has to say, broad and wide. But to make it your own, to integrate it into your own life, you have to, you have to kind of get to work on it. And uh, that's where uh, people like myself uh, come into the mix. So I thought basically what I would do is I'd pretend I was a newspaper reporter. And we'd ask the basic questions, uh, which you probably think you already know. So it's always good to go back to something and look at it like from, with fresh eyes and from a different angle that you hadn't thought of before. So the first question we're going to ask fundamentally is, is uh, what are we doing and what are we on about? Now, that uh, you ever want to go to a cocktail party and someone says, what do you do? And you just want to say nothing. Because the, trying to answer that question is just, you know, so difficult. Well, I'm a lawyer. And, and although a lawyer will, exp will maybe express the broad basis of what you're doing, it doesn't really give its dimension. So when we talk about Buddhism, the first thing you should understand is it is not a religion. Now, the reason it appears to be a religion is because the practices and the methods that are used in Buddhism appear just like a religion. In other words... If it looks like a religion, if it smells like a religion, if it tastes like a religion, it must be a religion, right? But in this case, it smells like a religion, it tastes like a religion, it looks like a religion, and it's not a religion. So what Buddhism is, in essence, is the study of its mind and its objects. So in that sense, Buddhism is more a science or a technology. And uh, where, where science and technology really relies on, on kind of objective methods, like measurement, the problem with studying the mind is that the only way you can get a really good look at your mind is when you can get past the objects or behind the objects. Now, when, when I say objects of mind, I'm referring to any physical sensation, any emotional uh, feeling, or any mental object. And the problem for most of us is that when we think of our mind, we only think of it in terms of what object is appearing in our mind, whether it's a smell whether it's a, a feeling of uh, love for your uh, dog or uh, whether it's a thought about whether Obama should or should not have won the elections. So when we say it's not a religion, uh, what we're implying is, is that the study of the mind 
can only be done by one measurement system, right? There's only one thing can, that, that can study the mind, and that is the mind. So you have to make a distinguishment between what it is that you're studying, the mind, capital one, I'm going to call that capital M mind, and how it's studied, which is well, usually by what objects are in there, which is small m mind. So the problem is, is you're using the device you're studying, right, to, to study itself with. And this gets a little confusing for people because fundamentally, in order to know how the mind works, you kind of need to have it empty to start with. So you, you can study a pot with water in it, but it's really hard to study the pot very much with the water in it because you start studying the pot with the water and what's going to happen with the water. Well, it's going to get all over you, right? You're going to be, you know, you're going to you turn the pot upside down, you're going to get a little shower, you're going to get wet, and so on and so on. And so also when you talk about studying the mind, when you study the mind, uh, if you're busy with your feelings and your sensations and your thoughts, right, you're getting caught up in what's in the mind, not the nature of the mind itself. Does that make sense? So remember, whenever I refer to an object of mind, that, that means a sensation, any sensation, no smell, taste, touch, whatever. It also means any feeling or emotion you might have, from love to anger to joy to hope, that's the object of the mind in terms of feeling. And any concept, idea, or belief or attitude you might have, right? Uh, any opinions you have uh, from one end of the spectrum to the other, that's also an object. So as you, as you start to study the nature of the mind, mostly what you see are its objects and its patterns, how objects are tied together, right? how things fit together with each other. And so these patterns, however, are a result of the objects. So your, your liking for pizza comes because you were born in North America. So if you're, if you're studying the objects of the mind, like pizza, Right? Pizza is an object, right? It's a, a taste, it's a touch, it's a smell, it's a sensation. You like it or you don't like it, right? This is a feeling. And you want to go get it or you've had enough. That's an idea, right? So you have this, you have this uh, pizza uh, study, uh, pattern in your mind, but you also have all your patterning about pizza, right? You're from North America, you're from Europe. Uh, you like New York pizza, you don't like uh, uh, pizza from Italy. You know, the pizzas are too different. Uh, quite different, it's Italian pizzas, kind of the original pizza, American pizza is the pizza we've come to know and love. But the, the nature of the patterning of the pizza is still not mind. mind. The mind that we're trying to study is the mind in which or all this stuff gets put, including pizza and its patterns. So far so good. The th problem with mind in its essence is mind is in essence doesn't have any quality. None. Mind in its essence has no descriptive terms, it has no qualities, it has no characteristics. In other words, you can't talk about it. So the very first thing you probably say, well, if you can't talk about it, what are you doing sitting up here talking about it? Well, actually, I'm not talking about the mind that we're trying to study. I'm trying to talk about how do you find the mind beneath the mind that we study. When we talk about the, the nature of mind, there's all sorts of words that get applied to it, and which is really funny for a thing that you can't talk about. I mean, I'm reading a 600-page book right now on, on the nature of mind, of course, and if the nature of mind can't be talked about, you wonder what the heck they're talking about for 600 pages. And I sometimes wonder that myself. But uh, I am going to basically give you three 
terms that are easy to remember and that might help you understand it. Well, first of all, capital M mind is spacious. Usually it's called empty. Uh, the word used is shunyata, uh, emptiness, spaciousness. But when you think of uh, empty, you shouldn't think of uh, sort of zero or nothing, but it's more a case of potential. So for instance, uh, if you take the distance between your eyes and my eyes, right, normally when we're talking to each other, uh, we don't see that distance, do we? I mean, it's eye to eye and we're, inter we're, we're taking readings from each other on the eye contact and with the body language and so on and so on. We don't usually think of the space between us. So when we talk about empty, that's what we're talking about. We're talking about space between things. This is uh, easy enough when you're not particularly concerned with anything, but it's pretty hard to have spaciousness in your attitude when you're talking about your retirement pension plan. It's pretty hard to take, have spaciousness in mind when you're talking about your husband's or wife's activities when they're out of town. Uh, it's pretty hard to um, have spaciousness when the food is really hot or really spicy, right? Because you're so engaged in the actual eventing, it's hard to find the spaciousness there. But in fact, that's what capital mind is, the spaciousness between. Also another quality of mind is that it's luminescent or clear. Now, normally when you think of clear, you have a hard time with it because you always connect clear to an object, don't you? Like the sky is clear. But the sky is still an object which appears clear. So, or the water is clear. But again, the, the clarity is in, there's still water there to be clear. So when we say the mind is clear, we're really saying the mind is empty of phenomena upon which any event can occur. So if we use the metaphor of clear sky, right, which happens to be the name of our retreat center in Canada, <laughs> when we say clear sky, the object that appears in the mind is a cloud or the object that appears in the mind is lightning, or the object that appears in the mind is um, rain or snow. And in that sense, these objects become how we know the sky. But the, the clear sky itself, right, means that any event can appear in the mind because the mind is clear. The mind starts out clear, and, and then something happens, like an image of a pizza. Right, you have a clear mind, right, and then you have an image of a pizza, and, and the mind is still clear, even though that pizza is present, right? Because the pizza is coming in and going out of the mind. Is that clear? All right. The third aspect of mind, right, is that it's aware. That mind in and of itself has awareness, because the reason you know that is because as soon as that pizza kicks up in your mind, you're aware that it's there. Simple. So. Capital M mind is, by definition, spacious, luminescent or clear, and aware. And that's about all we can say about it. So then what's Buddhism? Or what is the, what is the purpose of Buddhism? Well, the purpose of Buddhism is really that to get you through the problems of any kind of suffering or struggle in your life. Because fundamentally, from the point of view of capital M mind, there is no struggle, is there? Because objects come in and they go out. Feelings come in and they go out. Ideas come in and they go out. Right? The difficulty with most people, why they're suffering, 
is because they identify, cling, have aversion to, own, try to get away from the objects of the mind. So I don't want pizza. Pizza makes me, I, when I have pizza, I have an allergic reaction. So I don't want pizza. Or I love pizza. So I'm going to go get the pizza. And the suffering or the struggle in a life all comes into play around the object. Not the mind itself. So the mind itself, in essence, is problem-free, is trouble-free, is issue-free, but it's also free of all of your particular likes and dislikes in terms of objects and so on and so on. So, in order for you to get down underneath the objects of mind, you need this kind of calm, clear ability to see through the object to the nature of mind itself. And the argumentation that's going to be presented here is, is that if you can let go of the object that's occupying your mind, and dwell in capital M mind, right? You are, by definition, in a clear, spacious, aware, and more importantly, blissful state. Now you could get bliss from the pizza, right? So you go, why should I get, why should I go to all this work of getting, uh, trying to get underneath the mind and its objects to get the capital M mind when I can just go have a pizza? Seems reasonable? Just go buy the pizza. It's a lot easier, it's a lot faster. Well, first of all, the problem is that the pizza might be bad. Might not be a good pizza. So the, the, na the, nature, of, um, the nature of suffering or struggle in your world is that the pizza may not be the pizza you want. If the pizza might be too hot, the pizza might be too cold, it may not be the pizza you like. Or it's the pizza you really, really love, so you eat two pieces too many. You got a problem, don't you? So we're going to argue that from the point of view of peace of mind, capital P, capital M, peace of mind comes when you can, when you can separate your mind from its objects, right? And dwell in this clear, spacious, aware emptiness. And then if you happen to get a pizza, and it happens to be a pizza you like, and you happen to be hungry for pizza, you enjoy it, and if it isn't, right, you don't. So in that sense, it doesn't change, it doesn't change your daily life at all. What it changes is where you put your refuge. If you put your refuge in the pizza, it's a 50-50 proposition. Right? Maybe you get the pizza you want, maybe you don't. Maybe the pizza, you want to watch, you want to have the pizza for supper and, you know, the delivery guy's late or something, or he doesn't give you the right pizza. All of life's struggles, right, all of life's difficulties stem from attachment to or aversion to the objects that arise in your mind. And the reason the aversion and the attachment arises in terms of those objects is because your identity is identified with the particular objects you like and disidentified from the particular objects you don't like. And that conflict between what you like and what you don't like creates the struggle. It creates the pain and suffering of a life. Now, you're not going to be terribly concerned about pizza, perhaps. But when it comes to the death of a loved one, or uh, uh, some kind of terminal disease, or uh, uh, a, a, a stroke, or uh, old age sickness, decay, and death, these arguments become very important. Because there's no way you're going to present, prevent yourself from getting old. And there's no way you're going to present, prevent yourself from getting sick, right? And uh, gradually having to meet the big monster called death. 
And at that time, none of the objects in your mandala are going to do you any good whatsoever. The reason being? They're all going to go away. They're all going to disappear. So where then is the refuge? Well, the refuge comes back to this capital M mind, which is spacious, clear, spacious, clear, and open. There are, there are two elements. There are two elements here that you develop when you, when you develop the meditative mind. One is knowledge and, and one is understanding. Now, this, this talk in, uh, in particular is focusing on the nature of the study, right? Because it's a talk. So, we're studying the nature of mind here. But there's another aspect to the teaching that's very important, was the experiential aspect of the mind. And for the experiential aspect, you've got to go to the meditation cushion. The nature of the meditative mind is to try and uh, let go right, of your obsession or your addiction to the objects that arise in the mind and allow the mind to rest in its natural state. This is very hard to do, because from the very day you're born until right now, all you've really been focusing on are the objects of your mind, the sensations, the feelings, and the thoughts. So whenever we start talking about spaciousness and clarity and awareness in the ground of the mind, your mind goes to clear as in, oh, a clear sky, and you put the object in there. So anyway, with the definition of knowledge, which is the study of the patternings, and with the experiential base of learning how to be still in the face of your mind, the, the contact with capital M mind gets deeper and deeper and deeper, it gets fuller and fuller and fuller, and your contact with bliss, clarity, non-clinging awareness gets greater and greater. It takes some work. The other aspect of what Buddhism is, is the study basically of cause and effect. When you get right down to it, uh, the whole purpose of Buddhism or the whole purpose of a teaching of awakening is to get you free from suffering, to get you free from struggle. Is it possible to be free from ever suffering again? You'd probably say no, right? From the point of view of the objects of mind, you're right. The objects of mind are always going to be conjoined with happiness, you know, joy, happy, you get and with struggle. These two things are always going to go together. The, the cause and effect of karma indicates to you that if I understand how this decision is being made, I'm going to understand what follows from this, what follows next. Right? So if I choose to go to the bar, and I choose to have a drink, and then I choose to have another drink, and then I choose to have another drink, and then I have to choose another drink, and then I choose to get in my car, and I, then I choose to drive my car, right? You have three predictable events, right? One, you're going to get away with it. Two, you're going to get caught, right? And three, you're going to have an accident. This is just cause and effect, right? The likelihood, of course, as we know, the likelihood that you're going to have an accident is going to go up, right? And the likelihood that you get caught, well, that's probably not going to go up. That's probably about the same, unless, of course, you're weaving all over the road. But the likelihood of you having an accident is going to get a lot greater. So now that you've been drinking, you have the accident, right? Hopefully you don't hurt anybody, right? You can't really get upset, can you? But you do. <laughs> you can't really get upset about it because you set it in motion. 
So when we talk about Buddha Dharma or the study of Dharma, we're studying the cause and effect, the cause of the, what the cause leads to which effect, and so on and so on. The difficulty from the point of studying your capital M mind, and for those that just walked in, capital M mind is defined as spaciousness, clarity, and awareness, versus small M mind, which are the sensorial objects or the feeling objects or the mental objects that arise in your mind. The difficulty with, with uh, studying the nature of cause and effect of some of your patterns is that some of the patterns are laid into your being before you know that they were laid into your being. In other words, there was no ego identity called the you until you were about two years old. You couldn't say what your own name was until you were two. You couldn't point your finger at yourself and say, me, until you were two. Right? You don't have that concept. It doesn't, it doesn't come into being that other exists. I mean, other exists, yes, you see other, but you don't see me until two. So by the time you're two, you've already got something, what is there, 50 million seconds in a year? So you've got 100 million seconds, and a lot can happen in a second in the mind when you have the neurons in your brain firing at about 100 hundredths of a second at a time. That's a lot of information. So you're already being patterned to certain preferences, you're being patterned to certain language structures, you're being patterned to certain cultural and racial and gender programs before you even know that you're you. So when it comes time to studying cause and effect, there's some patterns you just can't initially get behind because they're younger than your knowledge of them. Does that make sense? So what happens is that when people start meditating, the first thing that tends to run through their mind predictably is what they've been doing for the last week or what they've been doing most of the time for the last week. So if you've spent all your time in the last week playing tennis, what do you think you're going to be meditating about? Cause and effect. If you spent the whole time uh, working, worrying about work and money and money and work and work and money, what do you think you're going to be meditating about? Work and money and so on and so on. But what happens is, curiously enough, is the mind has about a 90-second emotional flood from the chemistry of your being. So if you think about work, and then that makes you think about your boss, and your boss isn't a nice guy, say, or woman, right, and they're giving you a hard time, and you get angry at your boss, that wash into the brain lasts about 90 seconds. And if you just leave it alone, in 90 seconds it passes through the system and it goes away. But what happens when we think of our boss? <laughs> once that emotional hormone, once that pheromone or, or uh, hormone or uh, uh, chemistry gets into the brain, you know, the dopamine or whatever it is, once that chemistry hits the brain, you get going. Right? It revs you up. Yeah? Any idea what I'm talking about? <laughs> and as you do that, you refeed that loop. You put more energy into that loop, and that loop goes on and on, and then you get more and more mad, and you get more and more, and then I'm going to quit, and I'm going to, I'm going to tell him a piece of my mind, and, and then you're worked up, and that makes you think of, of George Bush, and then that gets you going on the terrorists, and that gets you going on taxation and your city taxes in Kyoto, and that gets you going on uh, the restaurant where you, you know, and then that gets you on the tourists here for the Momiji season, and blocking all the traffic, and that get, you know, and it builds and it builds and builds, and now you're in terrible state. And it all started because you couldn't wait that 90 seconds to let the chemistry go through the system. Well, now, capital M mind doesn't, isn't affected by the chemistry. Uh, the aware, clear, radiant mind 
isn't affected by the chemistry. So when we say they're suffering in relationship to objects, that goes without a doubt because your whole identity, your whole uh, personality is built on your addiction to some objects and your aversion to other objects. So there is no freedom for suffering out there in small M mind. 